I'm thrilled with today's guest, the pride of Dorchester, uh, Lawrence O'Donnell, who is, of course, the host now for 13 years of the last 13 years, my goodness, of the last word. Um, he has had an illustrious career, every Emmy Award winning work for, of course, the West Wing, uh, worked for years for uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, uh, a writer, a best selling author, a thespian. Um, thanks for being here, Professor O'Donnell. You know, Donnie, you said 13. Now, in my head, and maybe according to the record, it's 12, but I also lie about my age, so I don't know. Uh, it, it, could be, it could be 13. I, I don't know. <laughs> Last week, Cross Paths, you and I were having a heated exchange a few years back during the, it was the presidential primaries in 2020, and I made the statement that if Elizabeth Warren gets the nomination, they'll lose 47 states. And you went off of me. You were like, what? how do you know this? And my answer is, I don't. We right. just make shit up. And that's the, I should have right. said that at the time. Well, I just, it was one of those, it was just one of those moments where I just thought every once in a while, we should do a truth and labeling thing whenever we're doing predictive stuff. Yes. And call them guesses instead of predictions. Because there's something about predictions that sounds like you're a weatherman, like you yeah. actually know. Yes. And, and, you know, and Donnie, I gave it up. Like I gave it up after when Trump went, uh, you know, from six points to 12 points in the polls in the Republican primary, after the thing with John McCain, I just gave up predicting because I, I yeah. just thought, oh my God, there's no, there are no gravitational forces anymore. I just don't know, you know. And uh, but no, we, you've been on, you've been on my show since then in sure. talking about uh, Michael Cohen yes. uh, and those developments, and I'm fascinated, <laughs> you know, what you're thinking as you watch apparently the New York DA investigate. What the U.S. attorney already did investigate, and I share Michael Cohen's frustration, why Michael Cohen was the only federal uh, prosecuted person in that story when individual one was telling him what to do. I, I don't get it. Yeah, I, I don't get why. Now, six or seven years later now, I mean, it's just it, 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 this is taking so long. Let me ask you a question. And this seems to be... A, a clear, clearly open and shut case, and that you know, Michael has confessed in front of Congress and has already done time for this. Do we are we taking our eye off the ball? I, I know we can walk and chew gum at the same time, and I know nobody's above the law. But when you see what's at stake in Georgia with with the prosecutions, with the pending prosecutions, when you see what's at stake with January sixth, are we letting? Does this give Trump a, a little path to martyrdom? And then, oh my God, this is what they're going after me for now. Well, you know, there's a phrase that's uh, disappeared from usage, but it was a big thing in the prosecution world in, say, the 70s, 80s, early 90s. Um, and they would come into court and in sentencing, they would say to the judge, this is a career criminal. This is a career criminal. And with the people who they called career criminals, there were multiple prosecutions going on all the time, simultaneously at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And they would line up and wait. You know, it's like, okay, well, this county's going to go first, and then we're going to go with the murder thing and all that. So I, I am not one who's ever thought that uh, there's some limit, there, there's some kind of limit to how many crimes Donald Trump can commit where we decide he should not be prosecuted for that. And I don't care what your reason is that follows that. You know, I don't care what yeah. you say. If you yeah. say, oh, it's too small or it's something else. You put a guy in prison. You sentenced Michael Cohen 
to prison for three years. You destroyed his life. You, you did everything you could to ruin his family and his family life. You did all that. And the guy who was telling him what to do, you say, oh, no, that's too small to prosecute him on that. That is not a prosecutorial doctrine that I understand. Yeah, so no, we, you and I are on the same page there. Well, well, Donnie, also consider Trump, okay? Consider defendant Trump. He is, as you know, the most litigious person on earth. If you ever said to Donald Trump, you can only sue one person at a time. Like, <laughs> what if that was the rule? You could, and oh, by the way, Donald, it can only be for really big things. It's like, well, that's yeah. that's not the Trump rule of going to court. <laughs> yeah, I want to go. I want to shift gears for a second to what's going on in Memphis because you have a unique perspective. I, I didn't know this about your history in doing my research and what you had gone through as a young man and the case your father was trying and how that affected you. Just for those, I know the people that watch your show all the time are aware of this, but uh, just talk to me a little bit about your youth and the case that your dad took on and how that played out in you and how this has you have a very unique perspective on this case. Well, the, the first book I wrote was called Deadly Force. Deadly Force. It yeah. was about police use of deadly force. And in terms, and it, you know, I think it sold, I don't know. I mean, it, it made the Boston bestseller list for a while, but that was about it. It, it, it did not, it was not a big attention getting book uh, in terms of sales. This it goes back to, a, not, this is 1983. This is, this, yeah, this 1983. Back, yeah. And so, yeah. so it paid a price in a way of being too far ahead of the story. You know, literally no one uh, outside of the uh, victims and victims' families and black communities, no one else was paying attention to police use of deadly force then. And you could not seize their attention. I mean, you know, I did an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and then I, I did the book, and the New York Times wrote a big article about the book and all of that. But the subject was not getting attention outside of a very narrow group of law enforcement professionals who were extremely worried about it. And uh, because it was it was really out of control in every way. Um, but there's a lot we didn't know at that time because the video camera had not been invented. And the story that I tell in the book is the story of James Bowden, who on uh, January 29th, 1975 at 6.30 p.m. was shot in the back in the back of the head by two Boston police officers. By the way, members of a so-called elite Police unit, uh, the so, tactical patrol force. It's a special, it's a special word, elite, right? Very special, special elite uh, uh, forces within police departments have always been a mistake. They have always grown into their own monster every single time. It's just the most guaranteed phenomenon in police work. Because in a sense, is essentially what you're saying to them is, hey, you guys have to do the job that the rest of the police department cannot do. Therefore, make your own rules. And they don't say that out loud, but that's exactly what they mean when they create them. And so, you know, my father, who was a former Boston cop, took on this case because he knew how bad it was. And he had to develop the whole case himself with witnesses from the housing project who saw it, including a little girl, Jacina Stokes, who was about nine years old at the time. Uh, you know, and it was, it was the kind of thing that no one was trying to put together in, in terms of a case like this because it was so difficult. And everybody knew even if you can get to court on this, on a civil rights uh, wrongful death case, you're going to lose if you can get to a jury on it. And uh, this was the first time anybody had won. And in the process, one of the things that happened in the process is that the cops involved in this uh, killing uh, came after me one night because I was in college and I was working in a, a, a parking lot. I was parking cars. Parking cars in, in, in Dorchester, in Boston. Uh, in the theater district, which was then called the Combat Zone. For combat Zone, yes, yes, yes. 
And I got into some combat that night. I mean, I, I did nothing, but these, un, you know, uh, plainclothes cops came into my uh, parking lot and basically just grabbed me and, you know, and, and beat me pretty good at the time. I uh, got a concussion, had to be hospitalized for, I think, one, uh, yeah, one, one or two nights after spending most of the night in jail. Um, and there were no witnesses to that, zero. And so as part of the case, eventually, as part of the crusade we were on then, because I, I then became an assistant uh, working for my father on the case and my brother, Michael, we also brought a case about the assault against me with zero. With and what zero. was the what was the motivation? I mean, you just in other words, you skipped over. In other words, basically, they were oh, trying, they to, were send, trying send to send scare, your dad. Were, yeah, that's a good trying point. to send your dad a signal. Right. They were trying to scare my father off the case. They were trying yeah. to scare my father off the case of deadly force. Uh, and you, the guy, there's a lot of things you could do, but you couldn't scare him. There's nothing right. could scare him. And so. Uh, and it just pissed him off all the more. It like it was like if you were coming up with a way to energize him. You yeah. Know? yeah. <laughs> that was that was a great idea. And and so I was a, a victim of one of these police beatings where there's absolutely no witnesses, and we beat it in court twice. We beat it when they charged me uh, with disorderly conduct, you know, complete lie. Um, and then we sued them, and we went into federal court on a civil rights case. And I was the only witness. I was the only witness. And the other witnesses were all cops saying, uh, he's lying. That's not true. And I won. I mean, we won, which is an amazing thing because it's the only case I can think of in the pre-video world where a, a victim's testimony was all you needed. Now, okay, the victim was like, you know, for, for jury purposes and for a highly racially prejudiced city like Boston you know, was sort of perfectly carved, you know, Boston yeah. Irish, Harvard sure. college student at the yeah. time, you know, these guys, some of these guys, you know, are big, they're kind of like the guys you're seeing in the Memphis, you know, all white guys, guys, you're, but, but really big sluggers, you know, these guys. And, uh, and the jury just decided on credibility. They just went, well, I believe, you know, his story, the victim story makes sense. Now, video has changed all this, right? Because, now, this story that we're, we're watching now is entirely because of the video. And as we've been saying that since Rodney King, but it's, it, you, you can never forget it. It's hugely important. The most important thing about what you're seeing in Memphis, the most important thing to know about it is it's been happening exactly like that, exactly like that for 100 years. And since the invention of the written police report over 100 years ago, that, those lies he grabbed for the gun. He yeah. turned in a threatening manner. Yeah. Those lies, there's just cliche phrases that are in every one of those reports. Now, at some point, we all know this, people have grabbed for the gun. But uh, if there's no witnesses and you say this black man grabbed for my gun in Texas or Boston or New York or Los Angeles or anywhere for the last hundred years, as long as there's been no video and no witnesses, that case goes the police way. And every word in that police report is accepted. What this video shows you is this great wonder about, okay, how many times yeah. in, in the last hundred years has the story that's in that police report that we're finally getting our eyes on, that's a complete lie. How many story times has that story been told? 
and have, have it accepted completely by everyone except the family. And it was a complete lie. And I would submit to you, it's literally thousands upon thousands of times. Is there any, uh, you know, there, 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 there's a spin out of this. Is, is There's a tragedy here. But the good news, for lack of a better word, is that the Memphis Police Department has acted swiftly and they fired them and they're immediately bringing charge against them. Um, I, I, that, that just is kind of a, a very hollow, uh, I've been hearing a lot of that and it just, it does not take the, the disgusting taste away at all. Yeah, you know, I'm one of the first people who more than... <laughs> you know, more than a decade ago, had to school myself out of suggesting anything in the category of good news. And the reason I had to school myself out of it is since I've been on this subject for 35 years, I have seen a lot of things that I would call progress. I would, I've seen better police rules. I've seen some better police investigations. I've seen some better police responses. Um, but I haven't seen any that weren't forced forced by video cameras, basically, you know? And so, uh, and then the other thing I have to be careful of, since I've been on the subject for 35, more than 35 years, when I'm talking to a 28 year old, they, there's nothing in this that feels like progress. They don't remember, you know, what it was like before, you know, Lawrence O'Donnell senior won the first civil rights, you know, wrongful death case against uh, police for shooting someone. And, and, uh, and so, and I do. And so, um, on the, and, and certainly on the victim, uh, side of this, you know, the notion that, you know, there's progress. I mean, you can't tell, you know, the latest mother, you know, to suffer no, the loss of a son that, well, look at how fast though, look at how fast they right. charged them. They never used to do that. And it's like, there's no reason for her to care about what they used to do. There's only one thing for her to care about, which is what they did here. And, you know, already what we're seeing is, so far, based on what we know, they, they're undercharging the group, meaning the guys who did the hitting, you know, the, the five they've got, the people who actually could have inflicted the death blows. Okay, you, you've got them. But the most important people to prosecute are the people who, as the law would say, were standing idly by. Yeah. And it's one of the good things about the, the George Floyd prosecution is they didn't just prosecute the Derek Chauvin. They prosecuted the other guys for not stopping him. And that was a giant breakthrough mm -hmm. in th these kinds of prosecutions. But it's going to take in the police culture. It's a very slow culture for these things to penetrate. And one of the things I thought, you know, the most important thing about the Derek Chauvin trial was watching him, you know, walk out of that uh, courtroom uh, in handcuffs. And by important, I mean, for the, you know, 650,000 police officers out there who could find themselves in that situation. Uh, watch that. Watch that moment because you don't want that to be you. And it's easy for that not to be you. It's easy. It's really easy not to do what Derek Chauvin did. And, and so the lesson of prosecuting the people who stand by and let this happen and who don't file accurate police reports. You know, you could, there's a police report filed by say the five guys who did the punching, you know, the other guys could come along and file their own police report saying, Oh, by the way, this might be interesting. Here's what I saw when I got there. And I didn't hear any of them say the following things, you know, and those, th that's, that's what you need is you need, 
an expanded notion of accountability on the scene. And every single person there who responds to that scene, the first thing is for the next several decades, the first thing is they should be worried about their jobs. Every one of them. I want them all worried about their jobs. And I want them looking at this scene and saying, is there something I should be doing? Is there something I've taken an oath to do? Is there, is there a report that I should file that conforms with my oath? Is there something here? And I want them to, and not one of them, watch the way they just wander around there. Yeah. Not one of them is worried about anything. Does it, it astounds me that the video, the video camera, they know they have video cameras. They know that's on. Yeah, but and, they, and, they don't necessarily know. I don't think they know that there's the one up on the pole. Okay. Right. The pole. And so, and that's the new, that's a, that's one of the great things for this that's happened for this subject is that these things are out there and they're up on these poles. And, and that's the one that really captures the crimes and the, the body cams are unsatisfying in all sorts of ways. And if all you had was the body cam video, you wouldn't have they, it. You wouldn't have it. You wouldn't have yeah, it. They could, right. they could win right. uh, yeah. uh, with a, with a, you know, reasonable doubt argument that you didn't see what he did outside yeah. of the body cam. You didn't yeah. see what he did. And it's like, yeah. well, now we did. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, there's a, you know, that's another great thing is um, if I assume they didn't know, uh, you know, none of them look up toward it. None of them, you know, it's not like bank robbers and they, you know, they, they know yeah, where they're right, going right, right. look up at it, you know, make sure it's not working. Uh, and so I, I think they didn't know. And I think that's yet another important thing for police officers out there, the ones who are capable of this, uh, that, that these cameras are out there now, guys. You, you better remember that. want to shift gears for a little bit uh this state of the clown show that we formerly knew as the republican party i always felt that losing would be the elixir that would wake them up that we are a culture of winning and losing and and that's what kind of that's the american way and what's blowing me away is that the they have they are so down a path right now of the continued lose. they've lost five of the last six elections ostensibly and how is there no God within the Republican Party? Is there no is there no greater force that just says, "Hey guys, this is a losing formula. Forget right or wrong. Forget moral, you know, moral judgments. This is the part that I can't figure out. That it's just it's so clear." Well, you're absolutely right. That used to be the rule that when you lost, you rethought everything. You know, the uh, the Democrats lost with George McGovern in 1972, who was their most liberal nominee ever. And he had other problems where his vice presidential candidate had to drop out and all that stuff, which, so it was very hard to diagnose uh, clearly what went wrong with the McGovern campaign. Uh, but what all Democrats immediately concluded was, well, he was too liberal. So we have to go over this way. Didn't, didn't take a think tank for that one. No. Right. And over right. the course of the 70s and 80s, they did move. And then Reagan wins and they keep moving. You know, they kept, the Democrats kept moving in this more moderate direction all the time. Um, if you were to just track how many members of the United States Senate were opposed to the death penalty, you know, in the early 1970s versus 1990, it, it got down to literally, I think there was a point where Ted Kennedy was the only one left. There was one, yeah. you know, and, and there used to be like 20, 25% of them. And so you've seen that reaction and you used to see that reaction uh, with Republicans. They would, they would, 
lose and they go, oh, wait a minute, we, we can't do that again. Um, so I think where we are is Tip O'Neill's, the great Speaker of the House from Boston, Tip O'Neill's famous phrase, all politics is local. So Ted Cruz doesn't have to change anything to get reelected in Texas. And not only does he not have to change, it's a formula for success for getting reelected, for winning, a, for winning a primary in Texas. Right. right. And, and Kevin McCarthy doesn't have to change anything to get reelected in his Bakersfield district. And so the, the Republicans who are in office, none of them have to change anything to continue to get elected. And they don't care who else gets elected. They mm -hmm. absolutely do not care. There's never going to be a day when Ted Cruz says, hey, guys, yeah. we got to sit down and figure out exactly how we win the Senate, how we win, a, you know, get 55 Republicans in the Senate, how we do it. We got to figure out, is there a Charlie Baker in Massachusetts who, you know, sure, doesn't agree with me on very much, but he can win as a Republican. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I can become chairman of this committee. Ted Cruz does not care. He is there to be on TV and he is there to hope desperately to someday be in the White House. And he doesn't care whether the Republicans are ever the majority party in the Senate. And that's true of every single House Republican, except for, you know, this dozen or so uh, Republicans who get elected in, in what is left of what sort of resembles a swing district. They know that they're not going to be in office very long. But they also know there's only a dozen of us and they, there's nothing, the party doesn't care about us. And the lunatic fringe on the Marjorie Taylor Greene side of the party is no longer a fringe. It's not they're a fringe. About, no, yeah, that's no, they're where about, the party they're is. They're about yeah. half of it. You know, they're about yeah. half of it. So, you know, you can't, you, there's no way for the Republican Party to make this adjustment. And at the presidential level, a very interesting thing has developed. Um, there's no analysis. Nobody offers you any analysis by which the Republican candidate, and certainly if we're talking Donald Trump, has any chance in the United States of America of winning more votes than the Democratic candidate. Right. That isn't even the plan. It is simply the Electoral College. It is simply North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, these places that have smaller populations than Staten Island, you know, they will deliver us the Electoral College. And that's the plan. And that's brand new. I mean, you know, we used to, every once in a while, someone would theorize. I remember someone would say, you know, it's mathematically possible, like in the 1990s, you know, to win the presidency through the Electoral College without winning, you know, the most votes. And you go, okay, show me. And it would just look crazy. Yeah, and just, yeah. ah, that's, ah, it's not going to happen. And so this Electoral College has corrupted the need at the presidential level for Republicans to say, how do we recalibrate, you know, because, you know, we could, we could win. I mean, but let me, let me chew on that for a second, because obviously the North Dakotas, but what's clearly apparent is that let's just take Pennsylvania. When you run a guy like Mastriano, uh, that he's going to lose that if you, no, no, not the, that when you run these real right wing wing nuts, they cannot win in the Pennsylvanias. They could, seems like they can't win in Georgia. So mm -hmm. their whole, that's what I, there are five or six states in play. We all know what they are. And, and that that's the, whoever goes more extreme loses in those states. And it's, it's going back to your McGovern analogy. So they can't even win the electoral college when they put the stake in the ground this far. What's going to be interesting to see play out 
is DeSantis. Trump is is no. unelectable. Yep. I think DeSantis is incredibly scary, frankly. I, I think he's a better packaged Trump. I I I I I, my, I cringe when these people no DeSantis is not so bad. No, he's dangerous. He's more dangerous than Trump because he's better packaged. So play that out for me a little bit. Let's say DeSantis does get the nod there. How does this now then play out? Well, I completely agree with your assessment of the two characters. I always wondered, I'm sure you did, you know, during the Trump in power years. What if he was smart? What yeah. if what if Donald Trump was smart? I mean, we, the thing that our democracy, saved, our democracy would be over right now. Yeah, that's I mean, what the would thing happen. that was saving us every day was not the institutions. It was that Donald Trump is a moron. He's an yeah. abject imbecile. And so and DeSantis is not. Uh, and De, so DeSantis so far does look like. Uh, the Donald Trump who isn't stupid. And that's, that is much scarier in, in so many ways. Um, but I, I, right now, if I had to guess, wild guess, if DeSantis really were to get out there and run against Donald Trump the way Barack Obama ran against Hillary Clinton, mm -hmm. DeSantis would win the nomination. I agree. The, the polling... Donnie, is almost identical to Hillary Clinton versus Barack Obama in the primaries. Where they both are right now is very similar, except DeSantis has more support than Obama had at the beginning of the primary polling. And, you know, Hillary was down around, you know, 46 or something like that. <clears throat> and Obama was around 14. And when I saw that, I just thought, well, if Obama can raise the money, he's going to win. And the reason is that Hillary had a very high negative. It, her negative was over 50. And Obama's negative was down at the bottom, which was around 30, which is as low as it gets. You get 30 just by having the word Democrat or Republican yeah. beside your yeah. name, right? So that's as low as it gets. And so what it meant was there's no resistance to the Obama number going up. And there is a force at the same time that can push the Hillary number down. Mm -hmm. And that is exactly where you are right now uh, with Trump DeSantis. I don't know if DeSantis uh, has the courage to do it. DeSantis's problem with Trump is not in a primary, it's in a general election. You know, because I, I see the way this thing playing out is exactly as you do. He beats him head to head. And Trump goes basically, fuck you. I'll take my 20% or whatever I'm at because obviously the Republicans cannot win with him as an independent. And he's the kind of guy. I think losing to DeSantis would bother him more than losing to Biden. And well, that, then, yeah, then you're left with um, the possible, the question of, well, how's the campaign going to go if Donald Trump uh, is kind of locked into one of his homes with an ankle bracelet because he's been found guilty in Georgia? And, you know, look, let's get one thing straight. Donald Trump's not going to prison. I don't care what he gets convicted of. You cannot sentence a former president to prison for simply practical reasons. A minimum of a dozen or more Secret Service agents have to go to prison with him because he gets lifetime Secret Service protection. Right. That's so interesting. Nobody, I've never, I've, nobody's brought that up before. That's very yeah. interesting. Right. I, I mean, I've mentioned it once or twice on the air, but I know it hasn't sunk in. But right. it's, it's really important. It's not going to happen. But what a judge is going to do is say, okay, um, I'm sentencing you to X. Uh, I'm sentencing you to home confinement and the Secret Service will go from being your protectors to being your jailers, in effect, right? And he's going to have to pick one of the homes. You can't fly back and forth between mm -hmm. them all, you know. And But but if that's the case, right, if, he's, if, if that's the case, he's been sentenced from the Georgia case, for example, which is probably the fastest moving of them all at mm -hmm. this point. Um, 
the funny thing is he can still run. It does not prevent him from being a presidential candidate. The fact that he's under that sentence doesn't prevent him at all. That's how weird the country is on this stuff. And so, uh, you know, it's... So anyway, I've always said that about predicting how Trump does in the next election. From the start, I've always said, please, in order for me to make my guess, please set for me how many crimes he's been convicted of, if any, how many he's on trial right. for at that moment. <laughs> I, I, I got a hand. I got you know, got to handicap it for me. Right, right. No, no. Yeah, I, right. you got to tell me that. It's like you got to tell me who's the jockey going to be on this. Yeah, right, 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 right. I need the yeah. I need the injury report. I need the injury reports. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's incredible. I want to just shift gears for a little bit and talk about uh, the life and times of Lawrence O'Donnell. First of all, we're talking around, it's around noontime. Obviously, your show airs at, at 10 p.m. Eastern time. Talk to me about making the sausage. Talk to me. I mean, I, I've been to this party. I understand it. But for the average viewer, it is overwhelming that you guys do five hours of live TV that every night with a blank piece of paper, you put this thing together. Take me through how the, how the, how the show comes together. Well, it's, you know, the bad news is that I have to write it. And like most writers I know, I hate writing. And I, and this, you know, I noticed this, Keith Overman really was the guy who created this phenomenon on MSNBC. You know, prior to uh, Keith, the shows, most of the shows were basically a version of, you know. They were wheels. They were basically, yeah. I mean, you just did a news wheel. Guys at the bar, guys and gals at the bar talking, you know, that's kind of a hardball formula. And that's basically what it was. And Keith comes along and he writes the show. And whether you like it or not, what happened was um, the audience was then in an author's grip for an hour. And it really made a difference, which made sense to me because that's how primetime drama works. You know, you're in an author's grip for an hour. And it made sense that that, that would work. Then Rachel comes along and she writes the show. And then you, you see, wow, look at these. These two shows have the highest ratings by far, by, you know, like, not even close, nothing. Yeah, close, double right? and tripling, yeah. So I, I get the third one, and the bad news is, in order to get a rating, you have to write it. I would love to do the hardball <laughs> show. Love yeah. to do that. Just walk in and go, okay. I mean, I used to substitute host hardball. I loved it. Sure. It great. I didn't write anything, you know? And, um, and But it turns out, no, the holding the audience is in that author's grip. And so- so I've had to do that and I still have to do it. And it writing is a very strange process to describe because it's hard for me to say when I'm on the clock and when I'm not. I mean, I could literally see a tweet at 10 a.m. that makes me start thinking in a writerly way. But if you were if you had a video camera on me, you wouldn't see me do something that looked like what we would agree is work, you know, until I don't know, but, you know, closer it's to baking. five, it's five baking, or yeah. six or something, you know? And so, so that show, I, I write that show in a very high speed panic. Uh, and I, I've always wanted to come into the material as late as possible because I could think something's important at 11 AM yeah. and it's not important by four. So I don't want to get too invested. So I'm, I'm, and I'm doing other things, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing things, I'm going to get laundry and stuff, you know, I'm doing things that are not on the job, you know, during the day. Um, and, and so it's, but it's, so it's very hard for me to say, here's the moment where the job begins. Um, but, but officially, you know, I, and in COVID once I, I started, the idea was get to the office as late as possible because you want as little exposure, Mm -hmm. you know, to people as possible. So I, 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 
don't, I get there around five, you know, and the real physical act of writing uh, begins then. Um, and, and it's, it doesn't, I, I was going it, to, it gets, it gets easier, but you, but I only know that uh, after I've done it, meaning I write an amount now that used to take me uh, 10 years ago. It used to take me hours. But the funny thing is, you know, before I did this show, the same amount of writing, 1500 words used to take me two weeks. I mean, I used yeah. to do a column for New York magazine that was like 1200 words. And I said, I was the only person who negotiated for as few columns as possible per year because it's so hard for me to do. And so I was doing about, I don't know, 20 something a year, like basically every two weeks. And it killed me every single time. I was also writing at the West Wing at the time, but that's just an excuse. It just killed me to sit down and write the kind of organized prose that is basically what I'm doing every night here. And I remember marveling when Keith Oberman left, because when, when Keith left, I had he left on a Friday suddenly, and I had to jump into that time slot on Monday. And I did a, a tribute to Keith uh, that time because I saw so many things that he did and achieved just in terms of television that no one had done before, including what I calculated to be writing about five op-ed pieces a week, full-fledged op-ed pieces a week. And I pointed out, you know, at the time that, you know, Maureen Dowd and the big New York Times columnists, their deal is to do twice a week. You know, right. some of them once a week, yeah. 800 words once yeah. or twice a week. Keith was doing more than that every night. And I remember like a f about five years into this show, I wrote one of these things that the, the, toward the end, a long script that's just me talking. And I said to Nick Ramsey, the guy who was working with me on it, I said, why did that take so long? It, was, it took like three hours. And he went, he went, boom, boom. He went, well, it's 1,500 words. And I went, oh, my God. Right. You know, that, that took three hours. That used to take me, you know, two weeks, three weeks. Um, and, you know, now I could, now there's times when that, that kind of output occurs starting at 8.15. You know, starting at like it's 8.15. I got to be downstairs by nine fifteen, and it's and it's and you can end up with over a thousand words, and and so I I never if you I kept if you told me that was possible you know ten years ago I would have said no it, it, you don't get it, and so um, the weird thing is the fact that I end up being able to do it faster does not equate to it's easier. I I go through the same. You just, it's, 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 it's unbelievable. I mean, I think up, right, right. the, the only, Donnie, the only thing that I've lost over the time of doing this show is the deep disbelief that I'm going to do it. See, I, as a writer, I don't believe myself. I don't talk right. about any project, long-term project that I'm writing because I don't believe I'm going to finish it. Well, you've basically said that your entire career has been accidental. You basically yeah. keep tripping yeah. into these things. And, and so what I now know is I don't care what time it is on the clock, how late I am on these scripts. I know I am going to get this show written by 10 PM. And that I didn't used to know. I mean, for the first, <laughs> for the first several years, I didn't know. Uh, it was like, it was just raw panic, you know, as the clock was, was ticking away. Um, and, and I, I always used to wonder is the way, is there a way to do this without writing it? And, and it, would it be more alive if I didn't write it? And of course the fear is, no, you'll just go blank. You just won't remember, you know, what you, what you meant. To right, right, right. And right. the really funny thing is I've written these things, right. And 
and honest to God, I don't know what's coming. By the time it's in the prompter, like literally two hours later, an hour later, and it's coming by, I don't know what the next line That's amazing. is. So it really is, It I am. I, you really are seeing someone say this thing as if it is off the top of his head. That's amazing. I've actually forgotten it. You you have a very different uh, pedigree than pretty much anybody that does what you do for a living. And do you ever find yourself, because you, you, I love that term, author's grip, drifting? Because you the daily truth now, or lack of truth, or just the daily events, are so theater to the absurd. Do you ever find yourself drifting into a West Wing mode where, not that you're writing fiction, but you're, that, that writer's muscle is taking over. And do you ever kind of have to catch yourself? Yeah, it 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 wants to sometimes, and I and I have to. I usually will pull back from it or mute it because it it would be too cute for this. And the thing that I always remember is, uh, I'm not the only show, and if I have a take on it that doesn't quite fit within the frame of this show, then you know, uh, John Stewart's going to do it on Apple, or you know, John Oliver's, Seth Meyers going to do it brilliantly every night. I mean, Seth Meyers does stuff. I'm almost relying on Seth Meyers, you know, every single night that, that he's going to come out there and take this story where, where it can be taken, it should be taken, but we can't take it because this really requires a very smart, very politically wise, uh, professional comedy guy like Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, same thing. I'm, I'm relying on both of those guys every night, you know, that please audience, uh, don't go to sleep after this. But of course, yeah. in my ratings, I can watch them going to sleep during the hour. Like right. <laughs> when you get to 10 PM, there's a funny thing in the ratings, you know, there's a, there can be a drop off. Like, you know, Nicole can have a drop off, you know, from five to 6 PM from sure. four to 5 PM in the course of an hour of TV, there tends to be a drop off. Right. But, and you, and you can almost always track where they went. You go, Oh, look, yeah. they went from here to there. You know, they, yeah. maybe they went over to CNN or something. Although yeah. that doesn't happen anymore. That's, that's not but, happening very much these days. But right? when you're at 10 PM, your drop-off, you're almost always, com- your biggest competitor is sleep. That is your biggest competitor yes. with the audiences. Yeah. They're done. It's 1020. It's your first commercial break. Thank you. Good night. Uh, see you tomorrow. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, yeah. But so it's, um, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I just think, uh, thank God for the online replay of stuff that Seth does and that Stephen Colbert yeah. does because they are- an They also ab- have one advantage over you. They've got about a dozen writers sitting there. So it's, yeah. it's also no, a little- No, but, it's, but that perspective <laughs> that they right. bring to it, uh, I mean, like how, everybody wants to do Santos the way the way Seth and Stephen does Santos. Yeah. Everybody yeah. does. But, yeah. but, you know, we gotta, we can't, you know, we're not, we don't, have the audience. We're not professional comedians. We're, we're not comedy writers. It takes a lot of professionalism to do it the right way, the way they do it. Yeah. Uh, and we just have to, I just have to get on there and talk about the $700,000 and keep chasing it. Just a, a question, two more questions. I'm going to let you go. I know you're tight for time. Today. You mentioned CNN. I'm going to ask you a, a question that you're, you're as equipped as anybody to answer it and you're completely ill-equipped to answer it. What would you do with CNN right now? You you're, know, the czar, have- you're the czar of CNN. You've got to have a, a concept that gets eyeballs you have a brand heritage you have to stay close to that is i equate it to burger king burger king has to be about whoppers but yet people don't want to eat whoppers anymore so what do you do so what would you do with cnn right now you know i live by the words of the great oscar-winning screenwriter william goldman when it comes to show business and we are in this in these terms talking about a piece of show business 
which is hour long television, you know, yeah. uh, and that is uh, William Goldman famously said in the first book I ever read about show business and screenwriting, which is the only book anyone should ever read about either one of those things, adventures in the screen trade. Uh, Bill Goldman said, nobody knows anything. And he was talking <laughs> about the executives, right? Because if they did, every movie would be a hit, right? Yeah. Like, oh, they just made all this money with Jaws. Let's do it again. They yeah. don't know how. No yeah. one knows how, right? And so that's true all the way through this system. And so one thing, I have felt myself smarter than studio and network executives only a couple of times, only a couple of times. And all I would have done is I, would, I wouldn't have canceled that show as fast as they did, you know, mm -hmm. on, the, on the entertainment side. I would have let it try another... I would have given it another 13 week order and see what mm -hmm. happens. But I understand why they did cancel yeah. it, you know? Yeah. And then I would cancel it if after the 13, you know, I, yeah. so I have no idea what, yeah. what to do at CNN if, if the mission is to get audience. And that's what I'm not clear on, you know, because they've done nothing to get audience. I mean, no. I would have, I would have guessed that if you take Don Lemon out of 10 o'clock against me, thanks for doing that, that, CNN's number will go down at 10 o'clock. And it did. And I would have guessed that he won't do better than the people you had in the morning, mm -hmm. you know, for a bunch of reasons, including that Morning Joe is a powerhouse. Yeah. And, and so they did not only not do better, they did worse. And so none of that surprises me, but I don't sit here saying, here's what you should do next. I, I don't, I, I don't have any idea. Yeah, let, let them keep stumbling. For we're on the we're on the blue team at MSNBC, so it's okay that they stumble. Last yeah. question: the whole premise of this podcast is that every everything today is a brand. Every person, every movement, every religion, everything. What's the Lawrence O'Donnell brand? Brand? Yeah. Uh, the the aging anchorman, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, you know, and, and Donnie, you know, you can't get too serious about your brand or anything about yourself when your occupation, Anchorman, is portrayed in the movies by <laughs> Will Ferrell. Okay. Yeah. If your occupation is portrayed, you know, by Robert Redford, you get to think you're pretty cool if you're yeah. Bob Woodward, right? Exactly. And you, yeah. and you are. Okay. Right. But come on, Anchorman, yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Lawrence O'Donnell, I appreciate your time, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Donnie. All right. Everybody tune in. Obviously, the last word, must-see TV every night, 10 o'clock Eastern time. You can find Lawrence O'Donnell, and you will be in the author's grip. Thank you, sir. Thank you.